Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. So this morning we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 16 to 20. Uh, This can be found on page uh, 811 if you have one of the church Bibles, or will be up on the screen so you can follow along. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's do this. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, the grace that you give us. Thank you this morning, Lord, that we have experienced that grace already. We pray, Lord, that right now that you would challenge us, that you would shape us, that you would change us. We pray that we would walk out today different people than the ones who walked in, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So seven years ago, uh, I was going to change the world. I joined a movement, a revolution to change the world. It was, of course, Coney 2012. Do you remember uh, this? Were you a part of this movement as well? Uh, I was. I signed up. I joined the revolution. We were going to change the world. Now, if you don't know what Coney 2012 is, uh, this was a video that was released in 2012. It went for 30 minutes, uh, and it was all about trying to stop this leader in Africa called Joseph Coney. He was quite an evil ruler uh, who apparently took children and put them into, um, made them into soldiers to fight for him. And so this whole movement was about bringing down Kony uh, in 2012. So I signed up. Uh, I joined the revolution. Now maybe you're sitting there going, "How did you change the world, Ben? How did you change this, uh, you know, this evil ruler? What did you do?" Well, I watched the video. 30 minute long to sit down. I actually watched the whole video. And not only that, but I shared the video, and then I nearly bought a t-shirt. I I mean, I went to the website, and they didn't have my size, so I thought I'd come back in a few months. We were going to change the world. If you're a part of this movement, this revolution, we were going to change the world. Now, you know, maybe you haven't heard of Coney 2012. And the reason you haven't, if you haven't, is because this movement promised so much and then fizzed into something so little. If you remember, it was probably due to a number of reasons. The first was um, the fact that they ended up being critiqued for not actually doing anything on the ground. They raised money to then raise more awareness. All their money went back into their social media campaigns. Another reason this didn't do anything was because of misinformation. There were rumors that even their stuff on Joseph Coney was about 10 years old, that he had already been exiled and kind of dealt with. And then the final straw that broke the camel's back for this movement was the leader of it got caught running naked in the street and put into prison. So Coney 12 promised so much, but ended being something so little. But I I joined the movement. Now, this week, um, I was comforted by an article that I read that talked about the psychology of people joining the movement. 
and joining movements like this, online, these things that go viral, I took comfort in realizing that I am not unique, that I'm not alone in this, that it wasn't just me who signed up to join Kony 2012. And this article was talking about the psychology behind it and saying that when it comes to humans, we have in our kind of DNA, in our psychological makeup, we have a deep desire to belong to something greater and make a difference in the world. It's kind of within us, deep within us, we have this desire to belong to something and make an impact in the world. And so if you want to create a viral movement, all you need to do is create a nice video with a good cause and people everywhere who are sitting at home watching Netflix on their couch will join that movement because that's what we want, right? It's easy. If you can sign up on a Facebook thing and join the movement, who wouldn't want that? Now, what's interesting, I mean, as, I, you know, as we consider and think about movements, the, the reality is today we are joining in on a movement. We are gathering today in some sort of movement, the movement of the church. Now, maybe your experience of the church is great. Maybe your experience of church is you, you have belonged, you have made a difference. M- maybe your experience of this movement isn't that. Maybe you've experienced a lack of belonging. And the fact that when you think about the movement of the church, you think this doesn't actually make any difference. But as we think about this movement, the question we want to consider today and think about today is, where did this movement begin? And why did this movement begin? I mean, was the church just created because people had a psychological itch? They wanted to belong to something and make a difference, and so they just joined this movement and began the church. Is that what happened with the church? Did this thing begin, exist, because people had this psychological itch they wanted to scratch? And if it didn't begin because of that reason, if it wasn't just people longing to belong to something and make a difference, then why did this movement begin? Why did the church come into existence? Churches haven't always existed. Churches haven't always been around the corner. So why did this thing begin? Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to enter into this moment in history. This moment in history just before the church began, and what we're going to see is the reasons why it began and the reasons it makes a difference to us. So if you have your Bibles there today, uh, it'll be on the screen as well, but we pick it up in chapter 28, verse 16. It says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So why does this movement, the church, why does this thing begin? Well, what we see here is it's got everything to do not with the disciples, but with Jesus. This movement began because of Jesus. Now, it's worth feeling the weight and the tension of what's going on here in this moment. See, if we were to read the book of Matthew, what we would see is that in the book of Matthew, we get this eyewitness account of Jesus' life, right? So if you go home today and wanted to read the 28 chapters, you'd see Jesus' birth, you'd see his teachings, you'd see his miracles, and then you would see his death. And here we enter into this moment after his death where the disciples are gathering on this hill. Chances are this hill is overlooking Jerusalem. They're gathered, the 11 guys are gathered on this hill. And there's some tension in this moment, right? Like the disciples, I feel at this moment, there's some questions about what happens next. You know, do they continue with this movement? Do they continue following Jesus? He's just died. Or do they go back to their previous jobs? Or do they find new jobs? Do they find a new teacher to follow? And so there's this tension built on this moment on this hill, but then Jesus turns up. The guy they saw die, 
turns up on this hill and, and appears to them, and Matthew records for us their reaction. Some of these disciples, in this moment of tension, see him and worship, and some of them doubt. Now, how great is it that, Matt records, that Matthew records that for us? How good is it that he actually just gives us their reaction? I mean, he's not trying to hide the fact that the disciples, you know, haven't got it all together. He just gives us the normal reactions of normal people if anyone ever saw someone rise from the dead. Because we know that doesn't just happen. People don't just come back from the dead. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, I mean, they saw him die a few days earlier. Here he stands in front of them, and Matthew just tells us what their reaction is. Some worship, which is normal. Right? Some praise him as if he's kind of God. They hold him up. They magnify him, if we want to use that word. And, and then some doubt. Some of them want more information. Some of them want to be convinced by it. Now, it's, I love that Matthew puts this in here for us. And to be honest, there's part of me that wishes he explored this a bit further. You know, like, who was it that worshipped and who doubted? Who was it that were the mag guys among the crew? And who were the doubters among them? And, and what was their reason for doubting? What was their reason? I wish he went into that, but he doesn't because he knows that when it comes to this movement, the movement of the church, it doesn't begin because of the disciples. John records for us in this space, in this time period, that these guys actually hid in a room and locked the door because they were scared. This is not about the disciples. This movement doesn't kick off because of them it kicks off because of Jesus. And so he doesn't go into the psychology of the disciples. He just points us to Jesus, and he shows us what Jesus says in this moment. And he says, in this moment, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Now, just soak up how big a claim it is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying there is nothing in this world, no ruler, no king, no authority, there is nothing in this world or in heaven that is higher than me. I am stronger, I am better, I am the greatest. All authority has been given to me. Now, now what are your feelings in that moment, your reactions there? I mean, I feel like if we saw someone say this today, we'd want them, either we'd laugh, right, at them, or we'd want them to prove it, right? Because this is a massive claim that Jesus is making. All authority is given to me. In fact, it kind of reminds me... um, I listened to another podcast called the Hamish and Andy podcast, and uh, Hamish and Andy are comedians, and in this podcast, they have this segment called Power Moves, and a power move is uh, a move that you can do where you basically pretend you've got authority that you don't have, so you've got power over someone, so people write in, it's probably the best segment, but just a couple to give you, you know, what a power move is, so there's one where if you're driving somewhere and you're sitting in the back seat of the car and someone else is driving, that when you get to the destination that you're in, you pretend in the back seat that the child locks on. And so then the driver's got to get out and open your door for you. And that moment, you've got a personal chauffeur, right? You've got power over them. You're pretending to have an authority that you don't really have. My favorite, though, that I have, I must admit, I have done this a few times, is when you're in a group setting with a bunch of people, it, needs, it couldn't be like a church like this amount of people. It needs to be sort of smaller. Maybe 10 people is where it works best at work, maybe. You know, maybe this is what you need to try this week to get this promotion. But um, in this environment of 10 kind of in this room, when you have to leave for whatever reason, as you've got to leave, you point to someone in the room and you tell them that you're leaving them in control, that, that you're leaving them in charge. 
And in that moment, it gives everyone else this illusion that before you gave them charge, authority, you were the one in control. It does work. I've done it a few times and gained power in that way. But so, so feel free to listen to this podcast. I mean, it's, it's, it's good, right? But this moment, this segment is good as well. But that's what a power move is. It's this moment where you're pretending to have authority that you don't really have. And, and if you can pretend to have authority that you don't have in this way, then you gain power. Now, when I read Jesus' words, I mean, in some sense, this is what it feels like. He's just saying, I've got all authority. All authority, he says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, is this, is this real or is this just some sort of power move? Is this just Jesus getting up to the hill and seeing Peter, you know, hang around? He's trying to gain power. John's trying to, and Jesus just comes in and alphas them and says, no, no, the power belongs to me. Is this a power move or is there something else going on here? Well, again, what's interesting is if we were to read through Matthew, this theme of authority, isn't, this isn't the first time that it's come up. This theme of authority comes up over and over again in the book of Matthew, particularly to do with Jesus and particularly to do with his power, his authority. So if you go home and read it, um, take note of this authority because over and over again we see Jesus' authority. So there's this moment where Jesus teaches this sermon on a mountain. It's kind of a, a, a famous teaching for Jesus on this mountain. And at the end of the sermon, in chapter 7, people wonder what kind of man can teach like this who has authority like this. His authority comes into question over and over again. Then there's this moment where there's a paralyzed man. And Jesus looks at the paralyzed man, and he's about to heal the paralyzed man. But before he does it, he says, to show that I have authority. Authority not just to heal this guy, but to forgive sins. I tell the paralyzed man to get up and walk, and he does. You see this moment then where they're on a boat and there's this storm brewing and going around. The disciples are scared for their life and Jesus gets up and speaks to the storm. And he tells wind and waves to stop and the wind and waves stop. And the disciples wonder what kind of man has authority to speak to creation and it does. Over and over again, you get this theme of authority come up. He casts demons out, they shriek, they run away from him. You get authority over sickness, authority over demons, authority over creation. But then you get to the point where Jesus dies. And in his death, his authority is being questioned. In fact, literally, he's dying with this authority, this mock, this sign that's mocking him above him that says, King of the Jews. He is killed. And in this moment, his authority is ultimately questioned because Jesus either made big claims and died and is like every other religious leader in history, cult leader that makes massive claims and then dies and we either remember them in some sense or we forget about them or he dies and rises again. And if he rises again, it validates everything that he said and everything that he did, it validates his authority. And so here the disciples are on this hill, right, kind of wondering what's going to happen next. Jesus appears, some worship, some doubt. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in this moment, Jesus isn't just making a power move. The, uh, the disciples know that this is for real. Because if he rose again, it backs up his claims. This is a man who claimed big things, but backed it up with something even bigger, his resurrection. So here in this moment, when we see these guys on this hill, what we see is why this movement began. What we see is why this whole thing kicked off, the church kicked off. It's not because of the disciples, it's because Jesus is alive. 
The church doesn't exist in any form if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. But it exists, it came into beginning, into existence, because he has all authority, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So, so what we see is this new movement begins. This new movement kicks off here on this mountain. The church begins to move. But what we see in this moment is not just a new movement, but a new vision for this church, a new vision for this movement. And we see this as we keep reading. See, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then verse 19, he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So the movement begins because Jesus is alive. But then Jesus gives them a new vision for this movement, and the vision is that this message goes to all nations. Now, um, we've been on this journey in the last six weeks here at Southside in this series called A Dangerous Vision. And throughout this series, we've looked at, if you've been with us, we've looked at the vision of Southside that we have to make and grow disciples. We've talked about how we want to reach 1% of our community, which is over 1,000 people. We want, to see thousand, we want to see more than that. Thousands of people come to know and love Jesus. We want to make and grow disciples. So we've talked about that. Then we looked at the core commitments throughout this series. So um, we looked at magnification, this idea of orbiting our lives around God. We looked at mission, this idea that we go actively into our world, knowing that God's patience leads to salvation. We looked at membership, the fact that we are committed to a community here, committed to our family. We looked at maturity. We are committed to growing to be more like Jesus. And we are committed to ministry, that we pursue greatness not in being served, but in serving others. We've explored this over the last six weeks in this series called The Dangerous Vision. And each week, we hope we've made it clear that when we talk about the vision of Southside to make and grow disciples, this isn't our vision. You know, we didn't come up with this in a strategic meeting with strategic plans over weeks. This thing of making and growing disciples, this vision is actually Jesus' vision. And we see it clearly here that his vision for this movement is that people become disciples all over the world. And specifically, Jesus points out to us exactly what that looks like. And we've touched on some of this in the last six weeks, but he gives us four verbs as to what this looks like. Four verbs to give us some clarity on this. And we see them in this passage. Go, make, baptize, and teach. Go, make, baptize, teach. And each of those words comes with it quite a powerful meaning. So what does it mean to accomplish Jesus' vision in this world? Well, first and foremost, go. We know what go means. It's active. It's a movement forward. We know what go means because when we're sitting at the lights and there's some, you know, pea plater on their phone in front of us, and the light turns from red to green, and we beep our horn nicely, we beep our horn, we're telling them to go. We're not telling them to be passive and not do anything. We're not telling them to wait a few years until they get their stuff out. And so, No, no, move, because I've got to go. I've got to get somewhere, right? We know what go means. It's an active movement towards something. And here, Jesus, is when he uses this word go, it's an active movement towards people. Now, again, in this series, we've been looking at this illustration um, of this cruise ship and this lifeboat. Now, if you've been with us six weeks and you've heard this over and over again, good. We want you to go to sleep at night thinking of cruise ships and lifeboats. Here at Southside, we talk about, this is what the illustration is. Uh, here at Southside, we talk about how, as a church, we are not a cruise ship. So a cruise ship, you go 
to be served. You pay your money, you sit in the comfy chairs, you drink cocktails, you enjoy it. When something's not right, you hit a buzzer, you complain. You know, we know what a cruise ship is like, and sometimes people think of church like a cruise ship. But we've talked about how church is not a cruise ship, it's a lifeboat. We are a lifeboat. We are desperate to see people saved. We are driven by spiritual realities of heaven and hell. We are driven by the fact that if people don't come to see and know Jesus, that they will face the just punishment for their sin. And so here at Southside, we are a lifeboat. We desperately want to see people saved. But when we think about this word, go, again, this illustration is helpful because we all know that a lifeboat is useless if it's not around people, right? Like a lifeboat is terrible. It's useless if it doesn't actually move towards people. It doesn't matter how good that lifeboat is. It doesn't matter how clean it is. It doesn't matter, you know, what the food's like, what the smell's like on the inside. If it never leaves the dock, it's not going to make a difference. This is what this word go gets at. This idea that we as a church need to be actively moving towards people. So firstly, go. Jesus' vision is that we go. Secondly, make. Make disciples of all nations. Now, I don't don't know what you think of when you think of disciple these days. I feel like it's mostly used when we say we align with someone's teaching um, or, you know, what they do. It's just a a kind of an active and intellectual exercise of aligning with someone. But a, a disciple in the ancient world was more than that. It was aligning with someone's teaching. It was learning from them. But it was this idea of learning from them by being with them. Right, So a disciple, you would literally go and follow the person you are discipling, right? the, the person you are following. If you were their disciple, you literally would follow in their footsteps. You think of Jesus' disciples, they follow Jesus for three years wherever he goes. This is the idea of disciple, it's going with someone. It's this idea of a lifelong journey. So you contrast it to go, go is this like movement, tell people about Jesus, but disciple is get alongside them. Walk with them, help them, see Jesus, be with them as you both follow Jesus. So make disciples, make lifelong followers of Jesus and make them of all nations. Now, how good is it what Jesus says here? All nations. You know, like if you're thinking of sitting on this hill, right, where Jesus is speaking, you've got 11 disciples there and Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. Kind of hard to imagine what that would look like, right? Like, This is a time in history where planes don't exist and cars don't exist and ships do, but not in a way they can travel, you know, really that far. Phones don't exist. The internet doesn't exist. And yet they're sitting on this hill in this moment in Jerusalem, overlooking Jerusalem. And Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. Hard to imagine how that would unfold. But but this is coming from someone who has all authority in heaven and earth and on earth, and we sit in a moment in history where we are the nations, right? Like it would be hard to imagine a further country away than Australia to Jerusalem, and yet here we stand having the message of Jesus. And not only that, but the nations gather in this nation, right? That we are a nation that is a multicultural nation where people from all groups and tribes meet among us. You know, in Eight Mile Plains, 60% of our community uh, are from another country. 
um, in the last year at Warrigal Road State School, the preppies of 2019 that came through, 70% of them speak another language than English as their first language. We are the nations, and we have the nations among us. And so Jesus' vision for his church, for his followers, is to make disciples and make them of all nations, to make followers of Jesus, lifelong followers of Jesus of all nations. And we do have a unique role to play in that here in Eight Mile Plains. So go, make, and then baptize. Now, we've experienced that a bit this morning, baptism. Um, What an experience uh, to watch Emily and Dave be baptized. Um, and, And when Jesus is speaking about baptism here, The idea that he's getting at, which I think Ross touched on here this morning, is this idea that um, what you're doing here is you're committing to following Jesus. It's a sign of something greater. It's a sign to say that you belong to the community. It's a sign to say that you are a part and that you are committed to being a lifelong follower of Jesus. And baptism can't be taken lightly. You know, like, I, I don't know what you think about when you think about baptism, but chances are that we take it lightly. Because in our community, it doesn't mean that much. You know, like you could go around the corner to a bunch of other churches, and if you wanted, you could get baptized probably next week, you know, if you speak to the right people, if you wanted to. Baptism in some churches, baptism in our culture is not held up. It's not that big a deal. But in, in the Bible, it is. And in the time that Jesus is speaking, it is as well. Because if you are baptized in this moment in history, you're essentially saying that you align with the people who suffer and die for their faith. Right, like you're saying publicly, I declare that I belong to the community of Jesus. I belong and I'm going to commit to the lifelong following of Jesus. And what that means is I'm aligning with those people who suffer and are persecuted and die for their faith. You can't take that lightly. That's a big deal. Public declaration to say if I die for my faith, that's fine because I have something greater. Biblically, baptism wasn't something that you could take lightly. And it's something that we don't take lightly either. We are to baptize people. We are to, this is Jesus' vision, that we baptize people who are committed to being lifelong followers of Jesus. And we baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is saying that I belong to the God of the Bible. So go, active movement towards people. Jesus' vision, go. Jesus' vision, make disciples of all nations. His vision is to baptize people. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. And then finally, teach Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Followers of Jesus are supposed to follow Jesus. That's what this is getting at. And what it means to follow Jesus is that we listen to him. We trust him. We listen to his words. He has authority. And he has died for us. He is for us. He is for our good. And so we listen to him. We obey him. And we teach others to obey him as well. To be a follower of Jesus means you can't pick and choose Jesus' teaching. You can't look through his teaching and and pick and choose the bits you like and get rid of the bits you don't like. We can't change Jesus' teaching. His teaching, we can't change it because culturally right now it's a bit insensitive. And, you know, 20 years ago it might have been all right, but now it's insensitive. We can't do that with Jesus' teaching. He commanded us to teach people to obey. He commanded us to obey. And to follow Jesus means we follow Jesus. We listen to him. We trust him. We obey him. So so the vision then for this movement, go, make, baptize, teach. Go into the world. Make and grow disciples of all nations everywhere. Baptize them and teach them to obey. 
Now, again, I don't know as you hear this, what feelings this brings to you or what thoughts run through your head as you're thinking about this. But again, it's worth actually putting ourselves on this mountain with Jesus. You know, if, if we were there in this moment, there's 11 disciples here. If we're one of them, 10 other guys around us, these are tradies, these are tax collectors, these are guys, you know, this is the biggest mismatch of people that there's ever been. And here Jesus is standing in front of them, right? We've already, got a, we've already got an experience of what their experience is, some worship and some doubt. So you get them sitting here. Jesus goes, okay, all authority has been given to me. And then he gives them this vision, go make disciples of all nations. Now, if you're standing on this hill, what are you feeling in that moment? What thoughts are running through your head in that moment? Because for me, if I'm on that hill, there's a few things that I'm thinking. Number one, I'm overwhelmed by the task. Number one, when I think about this thing, there's 10 around me, there's 11 guys here, we've got to make disciples of all nations, I am overwhelmed by that. That's too big for me. I'm burdened by it, there's a weight of that that I don't want to and I can't carry. Then I'm feeling fear, because I just witnessed Jesus die. And I know that if people align with Jesus, if they follow Jesus, they too might die as well. So I feel fear in that moment. I'm afraid in that moment. I'm scared that I might lose friends and family and my life. And then, not only that, but I'm feeling doubt. I'm pessimistic. I'm doubtful that we could actually make disciples of all nations. I don't know if we could do that. I don't know if standing on that hill, 11 guys looking at Jerusalem, I don't know if we could do that. I don't know if we can make a difference. And so I'm doubtful that God's going to do anything. I'm doubtful that we can do anything. Now, I don't know if you've experienced these feelings before as you think about making disciples. But what's powerful is that when Jesus gives this new movement, comes into existence with a new vision to go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus doesn't finish here. He finishes with a promise. He finishes with the promise, this last sentence in the book of Matthew. And this promise is the thing that will enable them and equip them to make disciples of all nations. It's powerful, it's equipping, it's empowering, it's enabling. And we see this in verse 20. He says, go, make, baptize, teach. And then he says this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus finishes not with the vision, but with a promise. And the promise is the thing that will enable you and empower you to make disciples, to make any difference in this world, is the fact that Jesus is present that he's with you. The one who has authority over all things is with you, and it's his power that will work. Now, we're going to explore what this looks like for the disciples over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at how this dangerous vision plays out for the disciples, and what we see is that Jesus' presence results in great power. But the question is for us this morning, what, is this, what difference does it make for us? What difference does it make that this one sentence here, what difference does it make that Jesus promises to be with us always till the end of the age? Well, I don't know what thoughts are running through your head as you think about that, but I think there's at least three implications for us of what this means. Three implications as we consider Jesus' presence with us, His power with us, this promise that He gives us. The first implication is uh, that knowing Jesus' presence helps us overcome our feeling to the task at hand. Knowing Jesus' presence helps us overcome the feelings to the task at hand. See, those feelings, what I would feel if I was on that hill, I don't think are unique to me. The feelings of feeling overwhelmed by the task, the burden that we feel, the weight that we feel, 
that people are outside of the lifeboat, that people outside of Jesus, if they don't come to Jesus, will face the just punishment for their sin. There's burden there. I'm overwhelmed by that. The feeling of fear. It's not unique to me. When we think about our role in speaking to people, our role in making disciples, being afraid, feeling fear, being scared of talking to people about our faith. Have you ever felt that? Or doubt? Doubt that we can make a difference? Doubt that God could do anything? Doubt that people could actually come to faith? Doubt in our day and age, it's 2019, right? Doubt that God could, doubt that anyone would even be interested in coming to church, let alone taking note of this. And yet this promise speaks into that. Jesus sees that and feels that and knows that this is our experience. And he promises to be with us. He promises to be present with us. And his promise of his presence is power. Because this is coming to the one with all authority. This isn't just coming from a guy doing a power move. This is coming from the one with all authority, the authority over everything. The authority to speak to a paralyzed man and tell him to get up, and he did. The authority over the wind and the waves to tell it to stop, and it does. The authority over demons where he told them to leave and they shrieked. The authority over death where even death could not hold him. This is coming from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the God of the universe who's saying, no, I'm with you. I'm present with you. And the feelings that we have, the burden, the weight, the fear, the doubt, Jesus says, bring them to me because I am with you and it's my power that's going to work through you. And so the first implication of this is that we can come before the King of Kings and lay our burdens down. We can lay the weight of saving people down. We can lean into our fears, push through the fact that we are scared, and look at our doubt and say, Jesus is here. The first implication for us that this last sentence gives us is that it helps us overcome our feelings to the past. Second implication, though, is, the second implication is that it leaves us being optimistic. It helps us to be expectant that God would do something. God's promise to be present means that he will work powerfully when we attempt to make and grow disciples. Now, we've experienced some of that uh, here this morning as we've seen with Dave and Emily, but this week as I was thinking about Emily's journey, um, I was there on that camp, on, on Fun Adventure five years ago. And what's interesting is, like, so Fun Adventure, if you're not sure what it is, it's a, it's a camp for teenagers. Teenagers come along to this camp. It's a, an awesome week where we do things like skiing. You know, this year we're playing, we're going to Top Golf and late, like, it's, it's a really fun week. But at this camp, we have a couple of hours of, you know, we have Bible talks and group times and we talk about the Bible. Now, it would be easy when you're thinking about teenagers right, again in, in 2019, it would be easy to think that there's no way coming on a camp like this that they would engage in the Bible, right? I mean, don't they have better things to do, right? Isn't there better things on camp to do? I mean, there's stuff to look forward to, there's skiing, there's, you know, there's, there's um, games that we organize, there's top golf this year. It would be easy to expect that, 
and think that teenagers aren't going to engage in anything on that camp. Now, five years ago, we, we felt that as well. And we feel that, actually, that sense every year. And so as a leadership team, we gather, and three times before the camp, and then on camp, we gather and, and we talk about how camp's going to run, you know, we, we try and organize that stuff. But then we pray. And it's in this moment where, I mean, we don't know the kids' names, we don't know their stories, we don't know their journeys, we don't even know who's coming, we don't even know if it's going to fill up, we don't know if people who have said they'll come will actually come. And yet in this moment, we pray, looking at the task ahead of us, and we ask God to do the impossible. We ask God that He would work powerfully, that His presence would be with us, and that the God who defeated death, and the God who could heal a paralyzed man, and the God that could speak to creation, that He would work in this moment. And five years ago, we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And God worked. His presence was there. His power was there. And here this morning, we celebrate the difference that God's presence made in the life of Emily. But we celebrate that with the other 20 kids that became Christians that year. And we celebrate that every year because we are expectant and optimistic that God is going to work because He's promised to do so. When we think about the task ahead of us, we can be optimistic in this. We can be expectant in this. In the face of our doubts, we can trust that God will work because He promised to do so. So first implication, it helps us overcome our feelings to the task. Second implication, we can be expectant that God would work. The final implication of this is that we can join the movement. We can join the movement. Jesus is inviting you to join this movement. And he's not inviting you to join the movement because you have a psychological itch within you that you need to scratch. He's not asking you to do this because, you know, it's in us that we want to belong to something and make a difference. No, Jesus is inviting you to join the movement because he's alive. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Because he died and rose again and because he is the only one who can save. Jesus is inviting you to be a part of what he is doing in this world. And so as we finish this morning, the question is, will you join this movement? Will you engage in this battle? Will you fight to be a part of the greatest thing that you can be a part of? Will you join the movement actively going, actively engaging in making and growing disciples? Or, or will we do the equivalent of watching the video and nearly buying the TV show, the T-shirt? God is inviting us to more than that. He's inviting us to be actively engaged in the movement to make and grow disciples. Let's pray that we, that we would. Heavenly Father, we pray and we ask this morning that you would give us grace, that you would help us. Jesus, thank you that you died, but thank you that you rose again. Thank you that you have all authority in heaven and on earth. Thank you, Lord, that it's your vision to make and grow disciples in this world. Thank you that you give us the ability, that you empower us, that you enable us to do so. God, we pray that we would be actively aware of your presence. We pray that we would be aware of your power. And more than that, we pray that you would work, that you would work powerfully in our world to help more and more people see and love Jesus, to know that his name is the only name that can save. Give us 
this motivation. Give us this drive, Lord, and help us to join this movement in what you're doing in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.